God has given us many examples of how he has worked with mankind in the Old Testament and it's for our instruction. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we're talking about Scripture is inspired of God and profitable for instruction, for reproof, for training in righteousness. And uh, there's so much of that in the Old Testament. We can see how to please God. We can also see, well, how not to please God, unfortunately. And when we look at the kings, we get all kinds of examples, unfortunately, mostly negative. Uh, Most of the time, uh, the kings aren't doing what they're supposed to do. All the kings of Israel uh, failed in at least some respects, and many of the kings in Judah as well. And there's some things we can kind of learn from these kings about how God works with people and some of the dangers that we can get ourselves into if we don't uh, watch it. And uh, we see this constant theme in the kings of Israel. That every time a king of Israel is introduced in the text of kings, uh, they'll say, okay, this is the name, this is how long they ruled, and they did evil in the sight of Yahweh. They walked in the way of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, to make Israel sin. You see that in 1 Kings 15, 26, 34, 16, 7, 26, 31, and many other places. Later, kings of Judah who did not follow God were said to have followed after the kings of Israel. In 2 Kings 8, 18 and 27, of course, the kings of Israel were following in the way of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And so Israel's following after this guy and what he did. And because of it, things didn't go well for Israel. In 2 Kings 17, 22-24, the king's author will mention very explicitly why was Israel exiled out of its land to Assyria? Because they served other gods and they walked in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, to make Israel sin. So it becomes one of the reasons why they're being cast in exile. And later Judah will suffer exile for committing idolatry as well. So all of these sins keep going back to this guy Jeroboam. So why don't we spend some time seeing what it was that he did and how he led Israel to sin. And to do that, we start in 2 Kings chapter 11. Sorry, 1 Kings chapter 11. Let's start with 1 Kings. It's a little easier. Okay. Uh, this is the days of King Solomon. Of course, Solomon is the son of David. David was established on his throne by God. David was a man after God's own heart. David was promised that there would always be a man to sit on his throne. And then there's his son Solomon. And Solomon is given all this fantastic wealth. He builds the temple. He's got all this wisdom. He seems to have it made. Everything's going great. But then in chapter 11, the first eight verses were told about Solomon's problem. And there were lots of them, and they were called women. Specifically foreign women. And the foreign women still serve their foreign gods. And uh, Solomon, being a good diplomat, not only allowed them to serve their gods, but also participated in the service of those gods. And that roused Yahweh to anger and jealousy and wrath. And therefore, he began to send adversaries against Solomon. And we see in verse... 26. There's this guy, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He's an Ephraimite. He's a servant of Solomon. He's in fact uh, uh, the guy who um, was given charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph because Solomon saw he was an enterprising young man and knew what he was doing. Um, But as he's going on the road one day, Ahijah the Shilonite, who was a prophet, meets him on the road and he cuts a garment in 12 pieces. 
and he tells Jeroboam to take ten of them. And he explains it. I am ripping away from the house of David ten of the tribes of Israel. And I am going to give them to you because he has forsaken me and has served all of these other gods. And we have something very important in verse 37 and 38 of chapter 11. And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. So God here is willing to make a great promise to Jeroboam, if you just do what I say, like David did, I will establish your house over the ten tribes of Israel as I established David's house over Judah. So there's a lot of faith and hope in that promise. And Solomon finds out about this, of course, because you can't hide from the king, and so Solomon wants to kill Jeroboam, which is understandable. So Jeroboam flees to Egypt. But then Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam comes on the throne in chapter 12, and when the people say that uh, enough's enough, we, we, we want to have our burdens loose, and Rehoboam tries to act like he's more of a man than his father, and he's going to prove it by having them work harder, pay more in taxes, and be more enslaved. As you can imagine, people don't like hearing that, right? If politicians said, I'm going to raise your taxes and make life more miserable for you, he would not be elected. And so the ten tribes of Israel say, you know what, we're done with this. We're not going to follow Rehoboam as king anymore. And so he, these ten tribes apart. And then they go and make Jeroboam king over Israel. And God tells Rehoboam, don't fight them, this is from me. And so now we've got this new situation. Rehoboam is ruling down in Judah. Jeroboam is now established on the throne over the ten tribes of Israel, just as God promised. So, we learn about what Jeroboam did beginning in 1 Kings 12 and verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of Yahweh at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me in return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. We'll stop right there and see where Jeroboam begins to go very wrong. We see that in the first few words of verse 26. And Jeroboam said in his heart, When David had ideas in his heart, he took counsel from Yahweh. He would ask the prophet what the prophet said. Does Jeroboam ask any prophet what the prophet said? No, he doesn't. He goes off in his own heart. And in his heart, he's concerned about the political situation. Well, if all my people go up to Jerusalem at least three times a year, they may want to go back to Rehoboam, and I'm going to die. Which... On a political calculation, if you're looking at it from a political perspective, a worldly perspective, you can understand his concern, right? He just broke off from this guy. They go back to see him all the time. That may not go well. But again, that's good worldly political calculation. But does that indicate trust in God? 
that God would be able to continue to secure his throne while his people go back to Jerusalem as God had commanded. No. So he takes counsel, in verse 28, and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. So, what does he do? He takes counsel and he makes golden calves. And he even says what Aaron says in Exodus 32, hearkening back to the original heir of Aaron. Behold your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So it looks kind of like what you would expect of religion. Right? It's still called Yahweh. That's why we're using Yahweh. Because we don't want to make anybody confused. They made these golden calves and called them Yahweh. So, you've got calves. You call them Yahweh. You say they brought you out of the land of Egypt. And of course, how does Jeroboam flatter people? You've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. You know, we're going to make it more convenient. We're going to make it easier for you. You don't have to go all that far just to go serve God. You can serve God in the confines of your own country. And uh, that was popular because the thing became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. And he also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. So he makes non-Levites priests, which serves two purposes. First of all, you, any Levites who were going to insist on the old way kind of get outnumbered. And secondly, everybody feels like it's more democratic. Everybody has their opportunity. Other people can officiate. It's not being exclusive to one group of people. And then we're told in verse 32 that Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. Now notice something here? The, the repetitive phrase in this particular passage? When he made, that he made, that he made, that he devised in his own heart. Where is all of this coming from? Is this coming from the revealed will of God? Is it even coming from a sincere study of Scripture? No. It's coming from his heart. It's coming from what he imagines, what he thinks makes the best sense in the circumstances. And again, you got to hand it to him. It seems like the Feast of Booths. It looks like the Feast of Booths. It just moved a month later. Just a month later. What does it matter? That's the kind of logic that's being used here. So the service here is as similar as possible in many ways. But where it's different, it conforms to the culture and world of the time. It makes sense. It's reasonable for the time. But it's not according to what God had actually revealed. Now, is God pleased with what Jeroboam has done? Well, the very next verse in chapter 13, we're told, A man of God came out of Judah by the word of Yahweh to Bethel. And Jeroboam was standing there to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of Yahweh and said, O altar, altar, thus says Yahweh, Behold, the son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. 
That does not sound like a word of affirmation and approval, does it? No, that's a word of condemnation. This was absolutely something that he should not have done. We also can see um, in verses 33 and 34 of that chapter that after this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. And any who would, he ordained to be priests in the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth. And then the word of Ahijah comes and declares against the house of Jeroboam in chapter 14 that his house would be made desolate, that their flesh would be the food of dogs and birds, which is real pleasant, right? And that everybody who would follow in his steps would lead to the striking of Israel. And what happens? Jeroboam dies in peace. But then his son Nadab reigns. Nadab is killed by a guy named Basha in 1 Kings chapter 15. And then Basha kills his entire household in verses 27 through 30 because it was for the sins of Jeroboam that he sinned and that he made Israel to sin and because of the anger to which he provoked Yahweh, the God of Israel. Again, the king's author is not leaving you in any doubt about whether God was pleased with any of this. No, he had his severe disapproval. In 2 Kings 17 and verse 6, as we already mentioned, Israel would go into captivity because of these sins that Jeroboam began. And in 2 Kings 23, 15 through 19, indeed, in the 6th, 7th century, Josiah comes and does exactly what was promised by the prophets. And he goes to, some, to Bethel, he destroys that temple, he offers bones of the priests upon that altar. And this begins this path of sin. In 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 31, by the time we get to Ahab, the king's author says, It was a small thing for Ahab to walk in the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, because he went ahead and just started serving the Baals and doing all kinds of other things, well beyond anything Jeroboam perhaps even intended. And this led Israel to sin. So what can we conclude from Jeroboam and the sins that he committed and foisted upon Israel? Well, unfortunately, Jeroboam and his path of sin is all too relevant in our world today. We live in a world that is full of all kinds of religious confusion, don't we? There's all sorts of people who are claiming to follow God, all sorts of ways in which they say uh, you can do what God says. And when we compare that to what we see here going on with Jeroboam, we see very many unsettling parallels. Because there are a lot of groups out there who have, perhaps they're very sincerely minded, but all of a sudden there are a few things they start insisting on that seem like not big deviance changes from what God had said. They're very small at first. But in the end, you see them getting further and further away. A lot of times it begins like Jeroboam did, where he thought in his heart. He extrapolated. He tried to make sense of something. And a lot of times, that's what I have. People just start looking at something as good. They make sense of them. One of the earliest ones was, you know, there were elders over a church. And it made sense. You know what? We've had elders over a church. Why don't we have a bishop over the elders? That makes sense. 
right? One guy, you can kind of a point person that everybody can point to. And then, well, then you had the bishop become even younger than the elders, which is kind of awkward. But then the bishop may start having influence on other churches that might be smaller. And all of a sudden, the bishop now becomes kind of like an archbishop over a certain area. And then all of a sudden, you've got this huge hierarchy that you never see in the pages of Scripture. Where did it come from? Well, it started with these small changes that compounded and compounded and compounded and got a lot bigger. And how many different times are there all of these things that people think they can do where they don't have any authority from Scripture, they just ask where it's condemned? Jeroboam said, well, why can't we have the feast on the eighth month, not the seventh month? No, Moses never says we can't have the feast on the eighth month, right? But that wasn't what God intended because God said exactly what he did want Israel to do. And so it is with issues like instrumental music and the work of the church and the way that it's expanded in the eyes of many. A lot of times people uh, may be very sincere. A lot of times people may have some of the best motivations but they're not subjecting themselves to the will of God revealed in Scripture. They're going on the basis of what they think is right. And where does that lead people? Well, Jeroboam thought his heart about what was right and began down this path. And he did not trust in the Lord and follow his understanding. No, he trusted in himself, contrary to Proverbs 3.7. And a lot of people act out of fear, let's be honest. So why did Rehoboam do it? Was, was Rehoboam sincere in what he was doing? Did he honestly want to serve God in what he was doing? No, he was afraid that if everyone went to Jerusalem, he was going to die. Right? A lot of fear going on there. Did he put any confidence in the God who not only put him in power, but promised him a sure kingdom for his family if he trusted in him? Well, he showed no trust in God whatsoever. Instead, what did he look at? Worldly political calculation. What makes sense on the ground? How do people do that? Well, they'll read what's said in Scripture. Deny yourself and follow after me. Or name your commandment that's sometimes somewhat awkward. We talked about a few of those in terms of family relationships a few weeks ago, right? And there's many others. And they say... Yeah, but I don't know about that. That seems kind of hard. Or, I'm afraid that's not going to turn out well for me. It doesn't look right on the ground. That's walking by sight. If what you're concerned about is how it looks on the ground level, if you're concerned about worldly political calculation or worldly wisdom, and whether it makes sense according to cultural norms, you're walking by sight. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5-7 we need to walk by faith. Because it seems safer or makes more sense to people to do things just as they hear in culture. And that's why, as we've seen in our 1 Corinthians class, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, look, worldly wisdom doesn't lead to the revelation of God. Worldly wisdom will never get you to salvation. Worldly wisdom would never say, yeah, we're going to take the king of the world and kill him, and he's going to rise again. Nobody makes that calculation. 
That's why we do not put our trust in worldly wisdom, but instead to rely in the power of God and in what He has revealed because He knows better than we do. We have been corrupted in our thinking. It is not within us to direct our own steps in Jeremiah 10.23. And every single time people start innovating in religion, it doesn't turn out well. I think that bears beating. Every time people start innovating in religion, things don't turn out well. And we have all kinds of examples of that. It's also interesting to note how Jeroboam relied on past traditions. He made golden calves just like they did at Mount Sinai. Was it right for them to do that at Mount Sinai? No. Did it stop them from doing it? No. Sadly, when we look at all kinds of various false doctrines and false practices that are being bandied about, they're really not new. We talk about sexual license in our culture today. That's the way it was in the Roman world if you were male and wealthy. If you weren't, well, too bad. That was kind of the way it was back then. We talk about the philosophy of the world that all we are just random accidents that happen because... uh, uh, apes got too big for their britches and developed consciousness. Well, guess what that was called when Paul was walking the earth? Epicureanism. Same philosophical principles. Nothing new. And you look at all kinds of, even some of the strange religious doctrines out there, and look, hey, the Gnostics were that way in the time of Christ, or you can find parallels throughout history. So, air is rarely new. Sometimes people get creative in the new things they come up with, and that's not necessarily a good thing, of course. But what will happen is a lot of times people will pattern what they're doing after all of these things that have come in the past. And yet God still rejects it. God rejected the calf of Aaron in Exodus 32. In fact, Moses so eloquently bashes it into pieces, grinds it down, throws it in the water so they have to drink their God. Very creative. He rejected the, the calves of Jeroboam. And so an heir is an heir. It doesn't matter how old it is or how many people who were prestigious individuals believed it. The source of truth is God and it must be found in His Word. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 1 that he's worried about those Galatians. They're going after a false gospel. And he tells them, if anyone teaches you a different doctrine, even if we teach you a different doctrine than what we taught you before, it's accursed. It's not the true gospel. And we need to go back to that and remember that, that what we do and practice must not be because somebody in the past believed it. Unless, of course, it's from what the apostles preached. Even if it's a Church of Christ tradition, that doesn't make it right. It must be rooted in the apostolic gospel. All things must be rooted in the apostolic gospel. And we need to put all things to the test in 2 Corinthians 13.5. And remember, as Jesus indicated to the Pharisees, tradition can transgress the word of God in Matthew 15 and verse 3. Another thing Jeroboam did, if you notice, he changed the authority. God said, Levites, he let it be open to everybody. He had high priests everyone, and he himself officiated at the altar. And that's behind a lot of changes. A lot of times people want changes because they want power. A lot of times people want change because they want in on something they were not allowed to be in earlier, regardless of what God has actually said about the issue. 
or they invent for themselves positions of power to exercise authority God never gave them the right to exercise in, in various forms of hierarchies and things of that nature. And so things are going on just like that to this day. And that's why Jesus warned us about those things in Matthew 23, 8 through 10. Christianity is not about a power play. God has all power. We are his servants. It's not about wielding and lording authority over other people. That's not what this is about. Meanwhile, Jeroboam isn't a fool. He doesn't have everything look radically different. He doesn't change everything. He keeps many of the same festivals. He may change the date, but he has the similar looking festivals. And when he does make a change, like putting up that golden calf, it's because, well, uh, they got statues of Baal over there in Phoenicia. They got statues of Chemosh over there in Moab. And everybody's used to statues, even though God explicitly condemned it. And that's what a lot of people do today, right? They, they want to say, look, this kind of looks like Christianity. This kind of looks a lot like what's in the Bible. But we've made it a bit more hip for you. We've made it Saturday night, because you want to get up on Sunday morning. We're going to make it look like a punk rock concert, or a rock concert, or an adult contemporary concert, whichever one you tend to pick, like you're at an entertainment venue. We're going to have a few little details made kind of look like Christianity, kind of look like what you'd expect, but we're going to do these other things in order to make it more relevant, to make it more culturally acceptable. And how well did that go in the days of Jeroboam? How well are those changes motivated by those reasons going to go to this day? And, of course, the big problem with what Jeroboam did is it didn't end there, did it? It wasn't some minor little deviation that they just, you know, just kind of towed that line for years. No, it got worse and worse and worse. And it got worse in a way that the original person would never have intended. Could Jeroboam have envisioned that within a few generations Israel would be fully serving the Baals because they had digressed from the path that God had established for them? Do we not see that today in so many places? I make liberal Protestantism my uh, sounding board, not because I'm necessarily pleased at this, but it's because it's just so obvious. And it's distressing in how obvious it is. A hundred years ago, they decided, we're going to affirm the social gospel. We're going to affirm that we're going to be about social justice and equality. And they put all of their effort into all of their activism, first just to the neglect of the spiritual and then outright denying the substance of the spiritual. And what they've essentially become is a modern expression of culture with a Jesus veneer. And it's those groups that now, with every successive issue and every successive generation, conforms to culture. Last generation, it was women's liberation. This generation, it's acceptance of homosexuality. Only God knows what's going to be in the next generation. Polygamy? Polyandry? Who knows they'll be in the next generation? And then the next generation. Guess what they're going to keep doing every single time? They're going to keep moving that goalpost to just be like culture. Because that's the pattern they've set for themselves. And what happened? Are they growing and thriving? No, they're dying. The churches are dying. The numbers are declining significantly. But that's not just a problem out there. How many times have we seen this among churches of Christ? 
where, you know, the digressions, they, they don't seem very harmful, they don't seem very uh, strong, it might just be, well, if we're, we're going to give to money from the church to non-saints. We'll, we may have a fellowship hall as well. Then we go to, you know, the next generation, they're not content with that. Now the next generation is starting to basically say they want instrumental music. Now this generation is saying we should have women preachers and elders. The next generation, no doubt, well, they, they're going to probably try to find a place uh, for practicing homosexuals. The next generation, what's going to happen next? And what's going to happen to the next generation? And the next generation. It starts small, but it doesn't end small. People get further and further and further away once those gates get opened. And the sad thing is, is that path is well worn in Scripture because it's the path of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that made Israel to sin. And that's where it keeps going. Now, I know sometimes you sit there and think, why are you being so picky about these little detail things? Well, I'm going to tell a story that seems kind of funny because of who we are, where we're at. But uh, it is reported in the Amish community. And if you know about the Amish out out back east, the Amish have a very strict, guidelines and set of ideas about things and they, they prize this concept of simplicity. And every, to everybody else it just seems like an arbitrary decision about doing this but not doing that because of simplicity. Uh, and yet there is a noticeable trend that an Amish community, if an Amish people if they make one big shift and they go away from horse driven plow and go to a tractor within a few years they've gone Mennonite which for the Amish community, you might as well have just gone become a pagan if you've gone from being Amish to going Mennonite. Okay? Now, why does that happen? Well, when you start doing one thing differently, then all of a sudden you start doing everything differently. And all of a sudden, you completely change who you are because you've opened up that crack a little bit, and once you open up that crack, guess what? Boom, the whole flood comes down. And so that's why we need to take what happened here with Jeroboam and Son of Nebat seriously. Not because we want to be cantankerous for the sake of being cantankerous. Not because we're just going to insist on these things because we want everybody else to burn in hell. Not because we just want to be right and everybody else to be wrong. No, because we see in the pages of Scripture, you start making a few changes. And all of a sudden you lead your generation and the generation after you and that gener- next generation, next generation... By the time of Jeroboam the second, that's why we call him son of Nebat, he's the first. There's a second one, Jeroboam, in the days just before uh, Israel is cast into exile. Nobody would have thought twice about the fact that they were following these calves. Because it had been tradition for 200 years. And you look at the religious world, how many things are people doing today that have their origin 200 years ago or less? And think that is gospel truth. If God said, you know what, Israel... You've made some very minor alterations. I'm okay with that. We wouldn't have to have this lesson this morning. But that's not what he said, is it? God prosecuted Jeroboam, Jeroboam's family, and all of Israel severely because they deviated from what he said is right. And therefore, when we are bound to the wisdom of God as revealed in Scripture, we must proclaim this to you that we need to take what he says seriously because if we start deviating from it, there is that warning from Scripture of the sentence that may be imposed when we deviate 
for what God has said. God will be the judge. I'm not the judge, and I'm glad for it. He can keep that job. I don't want it. We're not here to tell people they're going to hell or to give people the impression we think everybody's going to hell. That's God's decision, but when we see this example here, it should give us pause. Certainly at least about ourselves to make sure that what we're doing, we're doing is because it's what God has said. That when we do things, we're not trusting in our own wisdom, in our own think so, but we're trusting in the wisdom of God as revealed in Scripture. Because we don't want to share in the faith of all of those who walked in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. And God forbid our legacy on the day of the resurrection is you were one who started off sin and you had all these people who walked in your way which led the people of God to sin. Now you're here this morning and you want to follow the Lord Jesus. We certainly want to encourage that. Because God does have these words of condemnation for those who disobey Him. But He shows loving kindness for generations of those who follow Him. We should not allow the disobedience of Jeroboam to color the promise in bad light that God made to him. That if he had been faithful, God would have established his throne. Because God is faithful. And God loves us. And even though we've screwed up, and even though we've sinned, God wants us to be reconciled back to Him. And He has given us that opportunity through His Son, Jesus. If we would only trust in Jesus, not in ourselves, in Jesus, and to confess that He is the Son of God before us this morning, to change our hearts and minds, no longer go in our own ways, but to follow the ways of the Savior, the good and holy ways, and to be immersed in water in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, and to follow Him as, as a disciple.